The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, y'all settle down. The sheep are fellowshipping too much. Okay, we have a uh, little surprise tonight, just so I'll give you a heads up so you can have a little uh, warning prep time. But we uh, have a special guest visitor here this evening, Tim Lipsy. Wave your hand, Tim, so they know where you're sitting anyway. Tim is a missionary down in Brazil. Uh, I've known him for a number of years. Uh, he's invited me to go down to Brazil, and a couple of years ago, things just didn't work out. Uh, Bruce Bumgardner's been down there. Jim Myers goes down there uh, every year. Uh, Tim also goes over to Ukraine with some other uh, ministry and is involved over there. But uh, I asked him, since he's here, to talk a little bit about what's going on in South America and Brazil and some of the uh, ministries that he's involved in. Things have changed. He and his wife came up to visit uh, us when we were in Preston City, and we had uh, some a good time there. So I think everybody will enjoy that. I'll cut Bible class a little bit short, but we'll have, we will give you an opportunity if you need to escape because you have to get up at dark 30 in the morning, then you can, and then uh, we'll have Tim give a little presentation. Before we get started, let's make sure we're ready to uh, focus and study on the Word. Get rid of all those distractions from the day past and the days to come and, and deal with whatever uh, carnality we have to deal with so that we can be ready to study the Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace, for your goodness to us, for our salvation that is complete, sufficient in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a substitute for us. Father, we thank you for your word that it is complete and sufficient as well, and that over the process of the uh, progress of Revelation down through the centuries, you have revealed your complete and sufficient will to us in many different ways, and as we study the scriptures, we learn how to think as you think. We learn to think your thoughts after you, and we are challenged to exchange the human viewpoint in our souls for the divine viewpoint you have revealed to us, that we might learn to think consistently in light of the Creator so that we can impact and interact with the things in the creation. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, help us to understand these things and see how they relate to our own life and understanding. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis 37, beginning in verse 2. Tonight we start our the last section in Genesis. And if it's anything like the previous section in Genesis, which took about seven months to go through, we won't be finishing anytime soon, but... Uh, we will be going, working our way through it, although I think this will go a little faster, not that we're in a hurry, but there's a lot of dialogue in these sections, and a lot of the dialogue is repetitive, so there is not uh, as much detail on some of the doctrinal aspects as there are in some other areas of Genesis, and we've laid a tremendous groundwork so that we can understand what's going on here and see the doctrines that are significant here for us. So I pointed out last time, when we look at this last section from Genesis 37 through chapter 50, it falls into a literary organization known as a chiasm. A chiasm is is based on the Greek letter uh, chi, which points to a center. It looks like the left-hand side of an X, actually. And so the center is where it's focused, and the center is on the G section here, where Joseph tests the brothers and Joseph reveals his identity. Everything sort of leads up to that, and what we see is 
in the beginning introduction in chapter 37 is the origin of this tension in Jacob's family, the tension among the brothers and the conflict and the competition and the downright hatred and jealousy that Joseph's brothers have toward him and how that is ultimately resolved. And it's the resolution of that tension between the brothers that ultimately provides for the safety and the security of Jacob and his family in preparation for their future in the land. They have to be taken out of the land that God has promised them to Egypt for a time of protection and growth. So the focal point is on chapter 44 and chapter 45. Everything leads to that and what flows uh, from that, from for, uh, what follows from 46 to 50 actually flows flows out of that. But that just sort of gives us a, a, a blueprint, a map, a bird's eye view of where we're going. In this first section, the emphasis is on God providing for the future of the seed of Abraham through Joseph. And we see how God is working behind the scenes. And one of the things I want us to pay attention to as we go through this is how God in his uh, sovereignty is working behind the scenes to bring about his desired results. You don't see in this passage the overt interference and direction of God. God is completely in the background. God is not even mentioned in this chapter. He's completely in the background. Yet what we see, is what I pointed out last time, is the principle of Romans 8, 28. And we know that he causes all things to work together for good to those who are to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so God is working behind the scenes. That's a primary doctrine that we need to learn here is that no matter what may be going on in terms of our immediate environment, in terms of whatever crisis, hostility, adversity that we're facing, God is still in control. It may not seem like God's in control. I'm sure when uh, Joseph was... Uh, being th- had his life threatened by his brothers that he thought God had forgotten about him. And when he's down in the pit waiting to be sold as a slave, I'm sure he was wondering just what God's, God was going to do with him. And I'm sure that when he was a slave in Egypt, he was somewhat concerned that God had forgotten about him. Yet we see that in the scope of events that God's an- answer to his prayers took place over a period of time. It's not something that happened Immediately, he wasn't rescued from the pit. He wasn't uh, rescued from slavery. When he did get out of slavery, he went into a worse condition. He went in from the frying pan into the fire, and he went uh, into prison. So we have to pay attention to how God is working behind the scenes. That's a major theme here. But what happens at the beginning is that God is going to reveal to Joseph his future position and power. And there's some interesting things that are going on in the way God does that because he reveals his future to Joseph through two dreams. But God does, but God is not mentioned as the one who's doing the revealing. As we look at other examples of dream revelation and vision revelation in Genesis, God is always mentioned. God appeared to so-and-so in a dream. God uh, uh, spoke to Abram in a vision. But we don't have that here. So God is really in the, in the far background of the events here. And we see that as God, part of what is going on here is that as God reveals to Joseph what his future is, he knows that Joseph is probably going to react in a way that will further aggravate the situation with his brothers. And so that in the irony of the situation, they try to uh, sell him into slavery in order to prevent the fulfillment of the dreams, and it is what brings about the fulfillment of the dream. So it's interesting to see all the dynamics how God is working behind the scenes. You just can't figure it out or second guess it. And this plays into an understanding of of the whole uh issue between the sovereignty of God on the one hand and human responsibility and free will on the other hand. Now, we start in verse 2. This as we read in verse 2, this is the 
uh, generation. This is the history. This is the Toledot in the Hebrew, the history of Jacob. That is, this is what happens to Jacob's family, if we wanted to put it in a more of a dynamic translation. This is what happens to the descendants of Jacob, and the focus is immediately upon Joseph. We were, although Jacob has a role to play in this section, immediately we are introduced to Joseph. We're told that he's a young man. He's 17 years of age. In the Hebrew, it also adds to this that he is a na'ar, which is translated in the, in the New King James as a lad. I think in the uh, New American Standard calls him a young man. But na'ar can also have the emphasis of a servant. And so that would make uh, sense in this passage. He is the youngest of the brothers, and he would not be in charge of the flocks. He would not be in charge of the sheep. He wouldn't have any position of responsibility. If they were stabled, he would be the one who would be entrusted with the job of mucking out the, the uh, sheep pens and uh, doing all of the grunge and dirty work, and that's just the kind of lovely brothers that he had. So we're introduced to him that he is... 17 years old, that is going to give us an important chronological connection which we'll have to uh, deal with eventually. And he is out with the uh, sheep with his brothers. And then the next sentence we're told, and the lad, that is the young man, or ser- uh, he, emphasizing his role as a servant, was with the sons of Bilhah. Actually, the Hebrew here is a really convoluted construction, and the way it's translated every English translation is very is, it's not very different from the Hebrew but it's almost impossible to do anything close to a word for word translation it's sort of like Joseph 17 year old 17 years old a young man uh, flock feeding uh, brothers uh, it's very uh, chopped up the young man was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah now remember Jacob here in the middle of this, here's a uh, flow chart of the line of the seed of Abraham. Jacob is here. Jacob first married Leah. Then he married Rachel. Uh, Leah began to have sons, and then Rachel, of course, was barren. Uh, then uh, Rachel gave Jacob her handmaiden, as Bilhah, as a concubine. And she had two sons, Dan and Naphtali. And then after four sons, Leah... Uh, quit having children and so she was not going to be left out of the competition and come in second place so she gave uh, her handmaiden Zilpah to Jacob and through Zilpah he had two sons Gad and Asher and then Leah became pregnant again had Issachar and then Zebulun and then finally Rachel became pregnant and had Joseph and last of all Benjamin and she died with Benjamin so that's the that's the family tree. And I find it interesting that the text makes it clear that he was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, not with the rest of them. So apparently there's just uh, he's just out there with uh, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and they are taking care of the sheep. Now, in the third verse, we are told that Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Now, Israel, remember, is the name, the new name that God has given to Jacob. Jacob emphasized his character as he's under the control of his sin nature, his natural personality as a heel grabber, deceiver, conniver, manipulator, uh, control uh, person who's trying to get the best out of every situation, whereas Israel emphasizes his spiritual side when he it's when there's a an interplay in the text, it usually brings out his more positive side that he is the one who's the one who is uh, the wrestler with God. So Israel, by naming him Israel, referring to him as Israel here, the text is painting a positive picture of Israel in his love for Joseph. And he loves Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. And there is nothing wrong in this statement with his love for uh, Joseph. 
what becomes wrong is the way in which he deals with that in relation to the other sons. He sort of rubs their nose in it. That's where it becomes wrong. Uh, parental, I, I think it's difficult for people not to have uh, some sort of favorite. If you have a lot of children, you may have a favorite for many different reasons. You may have a favorite because you like them, their personality. You love them all equally, I'm sure. But there may be other conditions like you have with Joseph. I mean, with Jacob here, that Joseph was the son of his favorite of Rachel, the one whom he loved more than he loved anything else. And so there was something very special uh, about Joseph. And he had waited a long time for Rachel to uh, give birth. And so it was late in life that Joseph came to him. So he had a, uh, Joseph had a special place in his heart, but he showed a favoritism that creates a tension in the family because of the way he handled that. See, in life, a lot of times, we can't do a whole lot about certain emotions that are generated in times of uh, adversity or prosperity. It's how we handle that emotion that is the issue. Because as we interact with different events in life, we can uh, have an emotion of anger start to develop or, or jealousy. And the test then is how are you going to handle that emotion? And if you don't handle it with the Word of God and with doctrine, then it's going to give birth to sin. And it's going to give birth to division and result in all other kinds of of consequences, and we'll deal with some of the dynamics of that next time as we look more with what's going on between Joseph and his brothers. So this is just setting the stage in verse 3, and in the context we're told, almost as a as an aside, he also made him a, it's translated in the New King James, a tunic or a coat of many colors, and this there's a lot of debate in the language because uh, exactly what this means because the, the verbiage that's used here is extremely rare. So it's sometimes translated a coat of variegated colors or maybe it was embroidered a certain way or it was decorated with certain kinds of ornamentation. But there was something about this, this tunic and it would have been a long robe that hung down to his knees but it stood out so that as Joseph is approaching the brothers later on in the passage when they're up in the north and, and Jacob sends him up there with uh, a message for them, they can spot him a long way away and that gives them an opportunity to try to figure out how they're going to uh, have vengeance upon him. But this, this tunic, this coat that he has is a coat that indicates his special status in the family. And see, that's where Jacob fell, uh, fell into a problem. It's not wrong for him to have loved Joseph more, but it's wrong for him to have showed this kind of favoritism. It's sort of like if you had one child and you gave them all the latest toys and gave them all the, you know, when they got were 16 years old, you bought them a, a, a new car and you had, had another son and, and he didn't get anything. So it was it generated resentment and hostility and bitterness uh, in the family. Again, this is just setting the stage. Verse 4, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So he is hated three times in the text here. We're going to be reminded that his brothers hate him. They just they, they can't even speak to him civilly. I mean, they really are angry. They just they're just uh, they, they they want to get rid of him more than anything else. And Jacob is has not helped the situation. He's got Joseph uh, uh, reporting on them. Back in verse two, Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So when he's out with his brothers, he's coming back and tattling on them and telling them what what they're really up to. And so it just aggravated a, uh, an already uh, unfortunate situation. So the brothers' hatred then develops into a very, an extremely hostile jealousy. And we'll see the whole dynamic of how mental attitude sins erupt into overt sins. Then in verses 5 through 11, 
we see how this whole situation gets aggravated. God picks a perfect time. The timing of God is not accidental or coincidental. It doesn't just happen. God picks a specific time when he is going to uh, give this dream to Joseph. And it just uh, adds fuel to the fire here. At that time, Joseph had a dream in verse 5, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. What's the interesting thing here is with this dream is we're not told that God spoke to Joseph in a dream. And that should stand out because every other time that God speaks and gives a dream, that is emphasized in the book of Genesis. So we're, we're not told that, and that just stands out that he's had this dream, and he, he interprets the dream, and he uses that dream to say, well, I'm going to... Uh, obviously be elevated over my brothers. And the first dream is described in verse 6, and it's and there are certain foreshadowing elements in the dreams. In verse 7 we read, he tells them all about his dream. He can't wait to t- talk about this dream he had, that, that they're always putting him down, and, and now he's had this dream, and it shows that he's going to be the one they're eventually going to have to bow down to. So he says, there we, there we were binding sheaves, in the field. Now, remember, later on, we're going to be faced with this uh, fourteen or this uh, uh, seven-year famine, and the brothers are going to have to come down to Egypt in order to get wheat. So there's there's a connection here between the dream and the and the sheaves of wheat and what will eventually uh, take place. We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. Now, don't make a big deal about the the details here. It's just just the uh, activity in the dream that his sheaf is is upright and standing, and their sheaf stood around in a circle, and... bowed down to his sheaf. And they all get the point. They say... So you indeed reign over us? Does this mean you're going to be the uh, the one to reign over us and we're going to have to uh, bow down to you and we're going to have to do what you want us to do and you're going to be an authority? And so they hated him even more. Now what is that? Get that cut off so it quits doing that. Okay. Now that's the third time. They are really aggravated and angry with him now. And then God gives him another dream. See, it's not an accident that this is happening as it's happening. God is using, revealing this to Joseph in order to, because he knows exactly what Joseph's going to do with it. He knows Joseph's going to go out the next day. He can't wait to tell his brothers that God's, God's told me again that I'm going to rule over you. And that's just going to make them more and more angry and that will lead to uh, the proper course of events. So that's how God is working here. He's not coercing Joseph's volition. He's not coercing the brother's volition. But God knows exactly what to do in order to produce uh, certain results. So in verse 9 we read, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bow down to me. Again, it reinforces the idea that he will be in a position of authority, a position of of, uh, 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 sovereignty, and they're going to be under his authority. And this time he goes and he tells it to to, uh, not only his brothers, but his father. And his father rebukes him, verbally chastises him for having told this. Who do you think you are making this stuff up? Nobody believes that this is from God. In fact, uh, although I, I made the statement that he attributed it to God, nothing in the text attributes it to God. And Jacob's response in verse 10 is, What's this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you, and his brothers now envied him. See, hate, 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 and now that it develops into envy. But his father kept the matter 
Now, Jacob knows enough, and he's had enough experience with God to where he, even though he is chastising Joseph for telling the brothers and aggravating their anger, he also recognizes that there could be something going on behind this. God could be revealing himself uh, in, in a new way regarding the future of Joseph and the family. And this is often the case in the Old Testament in dreams. So I want to take some time to talk about dreams in the Bible and analyze dreams and visions as part of divine revelation. There's, every now and then you run into people who think that, that you can interpret dreams and dreams have validity today, and, and everybody, but everybody has dreams. Everybody dreams, and dreams don't mean anything. In fact, years ago, and I've often wanted to go back and document this, but a friend of mine who was pastoring a rather large church here in uh, in Houston was working on his uh, Ph.D. at Dallas Seminary, and he was doing a study on dream analysis, and he was comparing the dream analysis in Freud's system of dream analysis with ancient Babylonian dream analysis and said, hmm, they're pretty similar. So there's there's a lot of occult things that go on with dream analysis, attempts to uh, foretell the future and other things of that nature. But we see something completely different in the way dreams and visions operate in the Scripture. So let's uh, start working our way through this. First of all, we need to know about the vocabulary. Dream usually translates the Hebrew word halom, which is used 65 times, and it occurs during sleep. This is something that usually takes place during sleep, whereas vision is something that can take place while someone is awake. All your, your conscience, but all of a sudden you begin to see something else other than that which is physically in front of you as God is opening your mind to the future. So the word dream is the basic word halom. The word vision translates one of three Hebrew words. Uh, Makizah uh, is one word, and uh, it doesn't mean awake. That shouldn't be in there like that. That's uh, misleading. It it happens when you're awake. Uh, Ma'ra'ah is another word. It is a a participle form based on the verb ra'ah, which means to see. And often this is a word that's applied to prophets as seers. They would see God's revelation of the future. And then the third word is a word, uh, chazon, which refers to more of the revelatory message. Sometimes it's translated, this is the oracle of God. Sometimes this is the revelation of God. It doesn't have the same precision as as vision. It does not necessarily uh, indicate something that is conveyed through a vision, but it it may, and in certain contexts it does. So it's a it's a broader, little more general word. So these are the the Greek words that are used that indicate this. And the basic, and then we have the Greek. I mean, those are the basic Hebrew words. And then we have the basic Greek words anar, uh, which indicates dream, used six times, only six times, and this is in the Gospels. And then the word vision is a translation of the uh, Greek word harama, which is uh, used um, not too many times and only occurs after Pentecost. It's interesting. You'd have dreams before Pentecost and visions after Pentecost, but that's it. There's a break there, which is kind of interesting to look at. Now, when we talk about dreams, we have to think about the broader category in which this relates, and that is revelation. Revelation, the English word revelation is based on the Greek word apocalypsis, which indicates an unveiling or a disclosure of something. So, And there are two categories of divine revelation. The first is what is known as general revelation. General revelation is nonverbal revelation. This is the idea of uh, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And Romans 1.18 to 20, not 180 to 21, but one that's 1.18 to 20. Uh, but in order to properly interpret a lot of general revelation, special revelation is needed. Nonverbal revelation, though, does communicate a certain amount of truth. Now, Romans 
uh, 1.18-21 says that by observing the creation, we can learn about God's invisible attributes, his omniscience, his omnipotence, those things, so much so that every human being has enough of a revelation from God non-verbally so that they are without excuse. That's the basis for God consciousness. That's called general revelation. It is non-verbal and non-specific, where special revelation is verbal and is specific. It is progressive in nature so that Abraham didn't know as much as, as Moses, and Moses didn't know as much as David. David didn't know as much as Daniel, and Daniel didn't know as much as, as Paul. So there's a progression in the giving of revelation, and special revelation is usually recorded. It is preserved for us, and we use the word canonical from the uh, Greek word canon, meaning a reed, or it was, came from the word for a reed, which was a, a measuring device, and came to refer to that which was a standard. Now, there's also non-recorded special revelation. There are things that God revealed to Daniel that Daniel wasn't allowed to write down. There are things that God revealed to other prophets in the Old Testament that were not necessarily written down in the Scriptures, but they still fit the pattern of sp- and, and qualifications for special revelation. Dreams and visions were a method for communicating special revelation to man. But it wasn't left up to man to just kind of guess at what the dream symbols meant. God always provides the interpretation of what those symbols uh, indicate. Okay, second point. Dreams and visions are often used in synonymous parallelism, indicating their functional similarity. You can't really make too much of an issue out of the difference in these two things. One occurs probably while you're asleep. One occurs while the person's awake. But they are functionally very similar. They're used a lot uh, of times in the same passage to refer uh, to the same thing. So they're very similar. I think there's a few distinctions we can make, but we have to be careful not to, not to press the distinctions too much. In Genesis which is the, where we're studying these dreams of Joseph. There are nine dreams and two visions, and they indicate some, some interesting things. First of all, we have the dream to Abimelech uh, to warn him about Sarah. This is when uh, Abraham had gone to the Philistines, and he's lied about Sarah again, that she's not his wife, she's his sister. And so Abimelech took her into his harem, and God appeared to him in Genesis chapter 20, and verse 3. Now, this is really interesting, and I want to just look at a couple of these examples so that you see how to properly analyze these things. Abraham had lied about Sarah again, saying she's his sister. And then in verse 3 we read, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. So first of all, it is God is specifically stated in this passage to be the, the author of, of the dream. And it's interesting because this is one of the few times that God dialogues with an unbeliever, an unbelieving Gentile, in any kind of revelatory situation. God came to Abimelech in a dream. It's not, this isn't a symbolic dream, it is a, a, a conversation. God says, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous uh, nation also? So there's a conversation that goes on here, and uh, there are no symbols that are necessary for uh, interpretation. It's pretty clear what God means for Abimelech. The next dream that we have is the dream that Jacob has and describes in Genesis 31, 10, and 11 when he's telling um, Rachel and Leah about the need to leave Laban and go home, and he talks about how God had revealed to him about the striped sheep and the speckled sheep, and here we had symbols again, and the symbols needed to be interpreted, and in that, uh, in his description, he says, the angel of God appeared to me and spoke to me, so he sees the speckled and spotted sheep, but then the angel of God tells him what those symbols mean. So he's not just out there uh, contemplating his navel, trying to figure out what the symbols in the 
uh, in the dream it meant. The next time we have a dream is another quick revelation to Laban. In Genesis 31:24, God appeared to Laban just before he caught up with Jacob and warned him not to mistreat Jacob. There's no symbols involved. It's just straight verbal revelation in the dream. No conversation. Just warned him uh, not to uh, not to abuse him. Then in in Genesis 37, 5 and 6, we have Joseph's first dream. And God is not stated. Now, every time we've had a dream up to this point, God has been stated to be the author. He's not stated now. That doesn't mean God's not the author. It just means that Moses is making a subtle point here that that it's not clear that God's the author at this point to either Joseph or to his brothers. Then there's Joseph's second dream, which we've just described. Then we have the butler's dream, the cupbearer's dream in Genesis 40, verse 8, and the baker's dream in Genesis 49. These are nonverbal. They are symbolic. They just see things. They don't know what they mean. And Joseph is the one who has to interpret them. Then we have the Pharaoh's two dreams described in Genesis 41, 8 through 32. And once again, Joseph is the one who has to uh, interpret them. So those are the nine dreams that we have in Genesis. But then there are two visions. The first vision is when God warned Abram in a vision not to be afraid in Genesis 15, 1. Afraid of what? Well, he follows this up. Don't be afraid. Uh, I will bless you. I will give you a descendant. And he immediately uh, encourages Abram that he will have a descendant uh, that will be the object of the of the promise, receive the blessing, and wouldn't be Eliezer. Um, then the second vision occurs in Genesis 36-2. Actually, that should be Genesis 46-2. Genesis 46-2, when... Uh, Israel is going down to Egypt, and this is going to confirm, give him confirmation that you ought to go down to Egypt, and it's time for you to go, it's okay, and God gives him permission to leave the land and to go down to Egypt. Now, in both of those visions, God is clearly said to be the one behind the vision and the one who is speaking. So let's make some observation of these things. Point number four, several Gentiles have revelatory dreams in the Old Testament. Abimelech in Genesis 20, the butler, the baker, Pharaoh, the Midianite soldiers, the next one. We go all the way from this last vision of Jacob's, which takes place in about 1750 B.C., and the next dream or vision that occurs in the Old Testament is when is during the uh, uh, when Gideon is a judge and he and his uh, armor bearer are sneaking up on the Midianites who are are coming through uh, coming through Israel again and they overhear one Midianite soldier telling his dream to a, to a, his buddy and as they hear this Gideon then interprets the dream that the Jews will have victory uh, over the Midianites. And then you don't have another uh, revelatory dream until 1 Kings 3 under Solomon, which is a couple of hundred years after that. So revelatory dreams were not normative in the Old Testament. See, there's a lot of folks who just think, hey, every, every Christian's out there having dreams, and God's speaking to everybody through dreams all the time. And what we see is that, no, they only happened on specific occasions, and as we'll see when we're, before we're done, is that it always had something to do with God's plan, moving along God's plan for Israel or protecting the nation uh, from something. In every one of these cases, when Gentiles had these revelatory dreams, a Jew had to interpret the symbols. No Gentiles are interpreting their own dreams. A Jew always had to be the one to interpret the revelation. Why? Because it was, it was the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, who were the custodians of divine revelation. So even when uh, the Gentiles have the dreams, the Jews interpret them. Now, God affirmed, point number five, 
God affirms that he speaks through dreams and visions as a normal modus operandi for, uh, for revelation. But in contrast to speaking in dreams and visions, he tells Moses that he speaks with him mouth to mouth or face to face. In other words, there is greater specificity in the revelation that he gave Moses than when he dealt with other prophets who had a sort of a lesser degree of revelation. And the passage for that is in Numbers chapter 12, uh, verses 6 and following, 6 to 8. And he said, God is speaking, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. See, there's the parallelism between those two terms there. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. Now, what's interesting here, just as a side note, is that word, that, that phrase, dark sayings is translated in the Greek Septuagint with the word enigma. Enigma, which is where we get our word enigma for something that is somewhat puzzling and somewhat unclear and and uncertain. That term is picked up by Paul when he's talking about the cessation of the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in that passage everybody goes to on the cessation of tongues and prophecy and knowledge and he talks about now we see through a a mirror dimly well first of all it's a bad translation from the King James you don't see through a mirror do you you look at a mirror and it shows your reflection we see into a mirror enigmatically it's that same word that's used here but then indicating when revelation is completed but then face to face see he picks up this verbiage from God's revelation, so we know that that's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Okay, point five was that God uses dreams and visions as as normal modus operandi for speaking through prophets. Point number six, in the law, God also provided quality control for dreams and visions. So you can't just run around and say, I had a dream last night and it was from God and God spoke to me because we all have dreams. I remember when I was in college, my roommate and I went ordered a couple of large double jalapeno pizzas and we had very interesting dreams that night. You never know what will generate dreams in your life. You can have, be in uh, stressful situations at work. You can have problems you're trying to work through. You could be sick. You can be uh, taking medication. Uh, you can be just uh, somebody with a highly active imagination, and you never know what you're going to dream about at night. And don't wake up in the morning and think that God spoke to you because you have to deal with this whole issue of the closing of the canon and the cessation of special revelation. It just doesn't happen anymore. But in the Old Testament, God provided quality control so people would know and be able to test whether dreams or visions came from God. And there are two passages in Deuteronomy that provide us with these tests. The first is in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. Now see, think about that a minute. God is not saying it's a false sign or wonder, that it's, it's a fake. He's saying it's, it's a real miracle. Somebody may come along and actually heal somebody. Somebody may come along and actually uh, cause the blind to see or, or, or some other thing, and all of a sudden you think, wow, must be from God. Now, I'm not talking about this kind of phony leg-lengthening stuff you see. Um, Benny Hindu on television and and uh, getting people slain in the spirit and that kind of stuff. This would be this is a a, a probably a demonically uh, empowered healing, but nevertheless there would be a healing. If there rises among you the prophet or a dreamer, and he says, Let, "I'm going to validate my my message with a sign," and so he validates the message by performing some sort of miracle. And it's, it's real. You test it, evaluate it. It's, uh, it. it's not just an illusion. Something really happened. But then 
he, he gives you his message. And his message is, let's go after other gods. Let's go make some idols. Like, like Gideon, let's go, uh, let's worship this ephod. Or like uh, Micah, that strange priest at the end of Judges who sets up an alternative worship site up in the north of, uh, of uh, Israel and says, let's go after other gods which you have not known, says, let's serve other gods. See, this is his message. And what what this is saying is it's the message that validates the messenger, not the miracle. doesn't matter how legitimate the miracle may be. People come up to me all the time. Well, so-and-so did this. And I've had discussions. I had a lady. uh, I was teaching a Bible class on this one time in a home Bible study. And the mother of one of the ladies in my church was there, and she had uh, been healed in one of these charismatic healing revivals of cancer. And she just swore that as the uh, uh, preacher was looking at her, looked at her, and saw right through her. And the next day, she was supposed to go to surgery, and they went in, and and uh, she was completely cured. I said, "Great, that didn't prove anything." But it had to be from God. No, it didn't. And I went right here. I said, see, false prophets and false teachers will perform real miracles. But the message proves that they're false. And verse 3 says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. This is a test. It's a real miracle. But it's a test to see if you're going to trust the Word of God or are you going to trust somebody who comes along and performs signs and wonders. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. So don't get distracted by people who claim to have uh, healing powers or perform miracles or any of these other things. So God provides a quality control for dreams and visions. The second passage that provides that uh, is in Deuteronomy 18.12. Incidentally, Deuteronomy 13.5 points out that the penalty is death. So that was what they were supposed to do if they had a false prophet who was teaching something contrary to the word. In Deuteronomy 18.22, we have the second test. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if that thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. So it's a 100% accuracy test. You can't just come along like um, some of these folks on the old 1-900 numbers. You'd call them up and get your get your uh, uh, astrological forecast, and then it didn't happen. Well, those people would not last long under the Mosaic Law. They'd be taken out and stoned because they were claiming to be uh, telling the truth. So there's quality control for dreams and visions. Point number seven. Visions were given to a variety of prophets all through the Old Testament. So we're not, we're not given a lot of detail about how this happened, but we do know that it happened. And these visions related to God's plans and purposes for the nation Israel. Every single time that you have this, it indicated something related to the purpose of the nation Israel. For example, the next vision or after, uh, after Genesis is a revelation to Nathan the prophet giving to him the content of the Davidic covenant for David in 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 17. Now this deals with visions. I've got a kind of two tracks going here, one on dreams and one on visions. You have Joseph's dreams... And then you have Gideon dreams, and then the next dream is going to be uh, Solomon in 1 Kings 3. But after the vision to Jacob in Genesis 42, you don't have another vision until 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's no visions in there at all. In fact, uh, that was one of the things that happened during the reign of Saul. They said there were no dreams and no visions that God had stopped revealing himself. You also have uh, vision, a vision mentioned to Edo the prophet related to the destruction of Jeroboam the son of Nebat in Second Chronicles 9.29. And Edo is also mentioned as a seer in Second Chronicles 12.15 and 25 and in Second Chronicles 
13.22. Second Chronicles 12.15 and 12.25 and 13.22. Zechariah the prophet received special revelation from God according to Second Chronicles 26.5. Isaiah had visions. Uh, Ezekiel had visions. Uh, when you come to some of the minor prophets, their, their whole message was couched in the term of an oracle or a vision. Hosea, Obadiah 1.1, Nahum 1.1, Habakkuk 2.2. All of these indicated revelation from God related to his plans and purposes for the nation uh, Israel. One thing of interest is that only three dreams communicate after the law is revealed. Remember in Genesis we had nine dreams and two visions? You don't have that concentration again anywhere else in the Bible. After the law was given, the emphasis is on the written word and knowing the written word, and the dreams and visions that come along are, are only related to giving of revelation to be written down in the word. So only three dreams communicate after the law is written and the Pentateuch is written. The first dream is in Judges 7.13, which I mentioned earlier, when a Gentile in the camp of the Midianites... Uh, relates his dream to one of his fellow soldiers, but it takes a Jew, Gideon, to understand its significance and to interpret it. Then you have a second dream after that, when God, when Solomon has a dream, and God affirms or reconfirms the Davidic covenant with Solomon in 1 Kings 3, 5, and 15. And then a third dream is when God reveals the history of the Gentile nations to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. So one thing you take away from this is that dreams and visions are not this normal thing that God is giving uh, direction to people about. The dreams relate to, point number nine, God's plan for history and the outworking of the Abrahamic or the Davidic covenant. Now we come to the New Testament. In the New Testament... Dreams are primarily associated with the birth of Christ. The word dream is not used after Pentecost. So dreams are related to the birth of Christ. An angel appeared, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph announcing the pregnancy of Mary that she's pregnant but she's was it was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's done in a dream. The magi are warned by God in a dream not to go back uh by uh by way of Herod. And they would be in danger. Joseph was then warned to flee with Mary and the child to Egypt in a dream and then given instruction to return and to avoid uh, the area of Judea and to move to Galilee. All that's revealed in, in dreams. That's it for the New Testament, for dreams. Then we have the use of vision about 12 times in the New Testament. There's the transfiguration of Jesus when he... His glory is revealed to Peter and John and James up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The term, he uses the term vision to describe that. It was something they saw. Saul was given a vision. This is Saul of Tarsus. Was given a vision of Ananias when uh, he came to heal his, heal his sight in Acts 9.12. Uh, Peter's vision uh, related to going to Cornelius in Acts 10. And then Paul's Macedonian vision to cross over uh, to Europe and take the gospel to the Greeks, to the Macedonians. And then uh, Paul was encouraged by the Lord in a vision to stay in Corinth in Acts 18.9. So that's it for the New Testament. So we don't have a heavy emphasis on people getting a lot of insight for their spiritual life through dreams and visions, do we? That's just a misconception that people have. So I got three quick conclusions. First of all, dreams and visions were designed first to communicate where there was no written canon of Scripture. And second, it had to do with the outworking of God's faithfulness to his written word in the covenant, specifically the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Dreams and visions communicated when there was no written canon. And secondly, it confirmed or it protected people in light of the fulfillment of the uh, covenants to Israel. Second, 
Dreams and visions never communicated personal information or trivial data. What should I do tomorrow? Where should I go to college? Who should I marry? You know, this kind of trivial stuff just never made it into the dreams and visions God, that, that God gave. That's not what he was dealing with. It never dealt with what, whether, what kind of investment to make or what kind of business decision or whether or not to go out and play golf tomorrow. You know, that, that just wasn't part of the deal. Third, dreams are common to everybody. People dream all the time. Sometimes we remember them, sometimes we don't. However, when we evaluate the dreams of the Bible, they relate to God's plan for the history of Israel, the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, They give special revelation in the New Testament. They're related to the birth of the Messiah and the outworking of the, the expansion of the church in Acts. Every time you have a vision, Peter gets a vision, take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's the next stage in the growth of the church. Then, uh, Paul is given a vision to go over to uh, uh, Troas to take the gospel into Europe. It's an expansion of the gospel. Then when he goes down to Corinth and faces opposition, God gives him a vision to stay there, stay the course. God's going to protect him. So that's the function of these, these dreams. Now, there's one other aspect to this dream of, of, of Joseph. If we look at that, that dream, the second dream... He talks about his family, his family which is the foundation of the nation Israel, that his father is the sun, his mother is the moon, the brothers, the progenitors of the 12 tribes, the founders of the 12 tribes are, are, are the 12 stars. Revelation 12 picks up this same imagery. You don't have to guess in the Bible as to what the symbols mean. Just like God didn't leave anybody guessing when they had symbols in their dreams as to what they meant. Revelation 12.1 says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman. Now who's the woman? See, non-dispensationalists want to identify the woman with the church. But it says here, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Where did we see the sun, moon, and twelve stars imagery before? You've got to go back to Genesis 37. But the scripture interprets scripture. Revelation 12.2, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. See, the woman isn't the church. The woman is Israel giving birth to the Messiah. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. This is what will take place in the future. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. See, that specifically identifies who the child is. goes back to Psalm 2. Can't understand Revelation if you don't understand the Old Testament. And her child's caught up to God in his throne. That's the ascension. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. See, it moves back and forth between in time here to what happens during the tribulation period when Israel flees to the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So you see what happens with Joseph in these dreams is important. It helps us understand Revelation. It also lays a foundation for understanding what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. You can't uh, just go in and guess at what dreams or visions mean. If it's significant, God always provided someone to explain it. When Daniel had his dreams and visions in Daniel 5, in Daniel 7, in Daniel 9, an angel always appeared and told him what everything meant. He was never left to guess. So we don't have to guess at God's revelation. He makes it clear uh, to us what it means. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. When I get done, if you need to slip out, do so. And I'm just going to have Tim come on up and he can give us a Report on what's going on down there, and if somebody in the back will bring me a microphone, then he can have a have a handheld. Okay, thanks, Father. We do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged by uh, this overview of Revelation and how you are the author of Revelation. You are the one who secures it in its 
uh, in how it's delivered, and you also provide for the interpretation of your revelation. It's not left to guesswork. It's not left for us to just just try to figure it out on our own, but you have given us the tools and the keys needed to properly interpret your word. Now, Father, we pray that uh, we'll understand these things and it will help us and strengthen us in our faith and in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.